From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human Centered. I'm John Markoff. Arthi Prabhakar is a former CASPIS fellow. A trained physicist, she has been director of both the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. A veteran Silicon Valley venture capitalist, this year she created Actuate Innovations, a nonprofit organization designed to model creative approaches to societal changes. We spoke about managing large research organizations and the gaps in our national research and development infrastructure she is trying to fill. I could just ask you to briefly introduce yourself and maybe describe your current interests, but only in the one sentence way, and then we'll go way <laughs> deeper, more deeply into it. I'm Arathi Prabhakar. My current interest is how we expand innovation in the United States so that we're ready for the problems that we face for the future. And describe your background. What were you before? Uh, I started off as an engineer. I uh, got a PhD in applied physics at Caltech, did not, did not want to be in a lab doing narrow research, stumbled into a congressional fellowship in Washington, and that opened the door to going to DARPA as a young program manager in the mid-80s. Uh, loved that, loved the idea that there was a place where you could stand and have a big lever to move technology and make a difference in the world. Uh, I was at DARPA seven years and then director of NIST, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the Clinton administration, then spent 15 years in Silicon Valley. Uh, most of that was a decade in early stage venture capital. And then in 2012, got a call asking if I'd go back and run DARPA, for, which I did for four and a half years. And then uh, in 2012, we were coming, I'm sorry, in 2017, we were coming home to Palo Alto and uh, like, you know, like an apple fell on my head and I got the chance to come to CASVAS, which was fantastic. So. That's the story. First, I wanted to ask about sort of what you expected on your way into CASBIS and what you found. And I mean, so, oh, so you're, nice. I mean, most of the people who come to CASBIS are active academics and you, you were not. And so you came from a different viewpoint, I think. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I'm not an academic. I'm not a social scientist. And so I was definitely one of the handful of us who were, you know, other that got mixed in. And I came, but one thing that was in my mind coming in the door was that I, in my five years, four and a half years at DARPA, I had gotten extremely interested in how the social sciences were changing. It, you know, stepping back from all the stuff that we did in the time I was at DARPA, the big pattern about what's changing in research and technology today, in my view, is that we, our ability to understand and influence very complex systems is accelerating a little bit. I mean, this is the human journey, right? For, for as long as we've been human beings, we've been trying to figure out how to wrestle with complexity and, and we're nowhere near figuring it out completely, but we're getting a little bit better in a very interesting way. And I think that applies to all areas of complexity, but most interesting to me was that I, I think the way we understand humans and behavior and societal interactions, that's changing. And that seemed to me to be very powerful, but I didn't know anything about social science, there and was, that's why I came. There's not a DARPA social science bucket in the sense that... There, there, we started some programs while I was there. We hired our first anthropology PhD as a program manager, 
and we were starting to figure out what, like what was what was even the question. Um, but so yeah, I mean that's we, in fact what we talked about was um, now if you want a little DARPA history. So back in the nineteen. 90s, I started the first microelectronics office, and it grew out of, we had an office at DARPA, the Defense Sciences Office, that looks at all areas of research, and it's, it's sort of the, you know, it's sort of the, the bubbling pot of, of research areas, and about every 20 years, something emerges from it that's big enough that, you know, we say, we're going to make a big, dedicated, long-term push in this area. So in the 90s, it was microsystems. In my time, we started a biology office for the first time at DARPA, Biological Technologies Office. And what we talked about was that, it, you know, maybe in the coming years, that social sciences would become a big enough DARPA-like thing to go do that we might start an yeah. office there. So you come from this, you know, a relatively massive agency to all of a sudden being in a study by yourself. Was that, <laughs> yeah, was, that, was was that alone? Was that a culture shock? Or Yeah, it was. Um, and it took me a while to learn, you know, I mean, I had a phenomenal team at DARPA. So everything from, I mean, just the scale of the responsibility and what we were trying to do. And, the, you know, like if I had a brainstorm on a weekend, I'd come in on Monday morning and, and by Tuesday something interesting was happening. And, and, and I could go on and do my next thing. And, and there was, a, you know, this huge thing was getting mobilized and people were doing stuff. And that's not, you know, you don't have that when you're, when you're out of that position. Um, and, and, and also things as mundane as, you know, booking travel. So now I can do all of those things, but yeah. initially it was definitely a shock. So, you know, this is a great transition place. I think yeah. that's one of the marvels of CASLAs, actually. And did you have a, I mean, traditionally people have come here to write books. Did, did you have that in the back of your head? Or, you, you, I mean, here you've built... You came here and you built an organization. Out of it, you built an organization. Yeah. But which way were you going when you came in? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't think about writing a book. I'm, again, I'm not an academic. And um, so that wasn't in my head. The, the, the organization that I'm now starting um, was not clear to me when I came to CASVAS. What I, the itch that I had that ultimately became this organization was because I had seen R&D and innovation from a lot of very different vantage points, I was really interested in this question of, my view was that we were doing great on the agenda that Vannevar Bush laid out for us in 1945. But you know, in a mere 75 years, you might want to think about what the agenda needs to be for the future. And I was pretty concerned, and I remain quite concerned, that we're not innovating in the ways that will serve our societal needs for the future. So that was the itch, and CASVAS was a great place to, to think and interact with people who think about society's challenges a lot. Yeah. Was, was there a particular sort of, you know, single moment where you just, the, the idea sort of, you know, formulated itself for you or did it uh, evolve over? It really evolved. I, there wasn't uh, an aha moment and, and it, you know, it morphed many times and, it, and it's, we're, we're, we barely exist. We're going to continue to morph. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, the threads of it are all the things that we're talking about is, is big problems that, that are this whole engine of innovation, half a trillion dollars a year in the economy, um, it, it, it's still going in the direction that we launched it in, in 1945. And, and so I think quite significant gaps in our innovation capacity, and then coupled with the, these new tools and capabilities to wrestle complexity in different ways. So that was sort of the problem and the opportunity. And those are those that's really our, those are our, you know that's what's driving the whole thing we're going to continue to iterate our way to something that works 
Well, starting that against the background of where we are as a country now, if I asked you the question, is the U.S. R&D infrastructure healthy, what would you say? I think it's extremely healthy in certain areas, and and my concern is how do we make it healthy in other areas. You know, you can't live in this area and, and not see the all the fruits of innovation. Uh, it's defined Silicon Valley and its history. So, so clearly a lot of it is working. But by the way, coming back to Palo Alto after being gone for five years, you also see what isn't working, right? You see, you see the... You know, you see the Maseratis and the homeless people side by side in downtown, and it's it's a snapshot of what what is working so, in innovation and what isn't working. And and so it was interesting that you started in '45 with Bush, and that sort of you put a stake in the ground there. But there was this second point, which led to DARPA, the, the Sputnik moment that the nation had. And I'm I often try to understand how that could have been that catalyzing. I mean, they, they, yeah. God knows we've had other crises out of which, you know, things, not as much has come. And with, what was That's a great question, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. My, you know, my sense of that moment was Sputnik is the symbol, but, but the backdrop is the Cold War and, and the, this idea of uh, this competition with the Soviet Union and the threat of nuclear annihilation was palpable, right? I mean, I, it it, I don't think it it didn't feel theoretical. It didn't feel, um, you know, climate today is is a phenomenally important challenge, very dangerous situation. But I don't think, I mean, I try to think about what 1957 or 1958 felt like and Sputnik happened. I think the, my speculation is that the memory of the second war was so fresh and and people knew what it meant to have the world lose millions and millions tens of millions of people through war and and to see that happen very abruptly i think it was very real in a way that if i contrast it to the actions and and our readiness to deal with climate today i i don't think climate's challenges or threats feel as tangible yeah um, so Actuate. What's your what's what's your statement of purpose for actuate? So, you know, my my passion, the thing that gets me out of bed every morning, is I want to see a generational shift in our country's ability to innovate for this these classes of major societal challenges that we face. You know, 20, 2019 forward, not nineteen forty five to twenty nineteen. And by the way, none of the things that we've done for the last. 75 years, we still need to worry about national security, we still need to worry about health, and we still need to make sure we have a vibrant basic research foundation. But we also now are facing the problems of, extreme problems of inequality, uh, income inequality, and the lack of access to economic opportunity, and the actually staggeringly bad health outcomes for a country that spends more than anyone on the planet for health care. Uh, and our lack of trust in data and information, even though we're so reliant on it in the information age, and then climate, which we've been talking about. And, and what I want to see is a generational shift in our country's ability to innovate for those problems, not because innovation is the only thing that's going to solve those problems, but because we don't know how we're going to solve those problems, and that demands innovation as part of, the, part of how we're going to get there. And um, what Actuate aims to do I mean, we're a brand new, tiny organization, but so what do we, how can we contribute to this? Our thesis is that we can contribute by 
running R&D programs in these areas and first to, to generate some interesting new solutions, show what might be possible for some of these areas. But also in doing that, we want to model what innovation looks like in these areas because it's not going to look like defense innovation. It's not going to look exactly like a DARPA or an ONR or a National Institutes of Health or NSF. It's going to look different. And I think we can show that not by being a think tank, but by going and doing R&D programs. So if you're going to put yourself close to something, it sounds like you're close to an incubator. Um, so what I, what I would say, so what, what we're not going to do is start companies. We are in Silicon okay. Valley and we're not starting companies, <laughs> you know, like radical thought. Um, what we, the, the piece of the puzzle that we think uh, we can contribute and that I think has enormous leverage is the kind of R&D that lives between basic research where you just write papers and you're done and the kind of R&D that happens in companies when you know what the product on the market is. And, and that, I, I think that's actually a structural gap and, and, and a good place for us to make a contribution. So, I mean, that's technology transfer in a sense, is it, or no? Well, what is it? Um, it has a lot, people characterize it in lots of ways, but it, it, it usually has the characteristics that you're starting with a systems view. There's not one particular piece of research that's the magic solution. It usually takes the integration of different kinds of research and technology. It usually has the characteristic that in addition to advancing research, you have to demonstrate something more applied, right? So it, it's in this in-between space. Um, I mean, and, and a lot of that is what DARPA does and, and why I think we're able to bring a DARPA mindset, not, not a recipe from DARPA, right, but more of a mindset from DARPA for these problems. But then you're, you're one step off to, there's an organization um, at, at Berkeley called Cyclotron Road, mm -hmm. which is, they're they right do now. want to push things to, they're slightly one step, they're sort of in your space, but they're not in your space because they really want to commercialize technologies. Yeah, what I think they are great at and they live in this bridge land. And they're energy-focused, too. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's where they started is energy-focused. But, but uh, th like us, I think what we very much share is we see lots of great basic research, and we see a market that's the most powerful and vibrant market on the planet, and we see a gap between those two. The particular way that they're going about it is trying to get scientists who, who think they might be able to build companies. They're coaching. I, I think of Cyclotron at Road as helping scientists and researchers become bilingual, right? So, so you can speak deep technical things, but also understand the business world. And I think that's a, that's a vital piece of it. We're gonna, I mean, our approach is completely different, but I think very complementary. Yeah. And will you start with, I mean, will, will you start in specific areas with, or with actually a specific project? How? Yeah. How? Yeah, so um, uh, we have these four very broad areas of societal need. I mean, each of those is an ocean to boil, right? I mean, just income inequality is an ocean to boil. And then we have a few other things that we think are problems. So there's no dearth of problems. What um, We're not going to try to boil all of those oceans. I view each of those four areas as um, areas in which we're going to search for very powerful opportunities. And specifically, we've, we've defined two our first two programs. And we're just at the beginning. We've just gotten... Um, uh, a commitment uh, for design grant support to design a program in, in one area and then uh, an invitation to make a proposal to do a design grant in a secondary. But the, maybe the first two are illustrative. For healthcare costs, we got very interested in the question of how could we 
scale the prevention of chronic disease. So 84 million Americans today have prediabetes. They're at risk of diabetes. The CDC estimates that only 10% even know that they are at risk of diabetes. Uh, the American Medical Association thinks that there are about 500,000 out of 84 million who are actually doing something in terms of lifestyle intervention, diet, exercise, smoking cessation. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of nowhere. And, um, the, you know, it's an obesity epidemic that's leading now to a diabetes epidemic. Uh, the question in that, the research question in that program is, can we take what we are learning about behavior monitoring, behavior modification, incentives, coaching from the world of advertising, marketing, gaming, and a lot of very interesting research. Can you apply that to this you know, incredibly hard problem of helping people maintain, achieve and then maintain healthy habits? Um, so you know, tough research question. We, I, I, there's research to build on, but more research that needs to be done. And then ultimately you have to demonstrate that it could actually work with real human beings. Yeah, and so um, on both sides of that equation, will you work with academics or corporate people on yes. the who does it? Both. We're looking for the best yeah. research talents, and um, the, inevitably those are going to be people who live both in universities and in companies and sometimes nonprofits. And what you know, what we want is to 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 fund the people who do the individual pieces fund a, uh, a, a, an integrator who'll build a prototype that could, you know, might be an app of some sort that you can actually test with, mm -hmm. with human beings and do the, do the tests and the trials. Uh, and then ultimately we want to show that it actually can work and be very, very economic and scalable. And then what we really want is for the people who develop that IP to own it and commercialize it and, you know. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about it in the context of, of Silicon Valley and the fact that you've touched all the bases, which usually people are usually in a camp, and you've been in all of the camps. And Some of the camps. Well, I think pretty you've been on the venture side. Well, yeah, I guess you haven't actually done a startup yet. This is your first startup. Right, this is my first startup. I have. And, and there, you know, there's a lot that goes on in technology and in the economy that's not like Silicon Valley, right? I mean, it's bigger companies and different industries, and I don't... Yeah, so there's a lot more, but I got to touch a lot of things that I loved. Yeah, but, but so do you have your own theory? You know, one of the, it's it's a favorite um, a favorite discussion point is sort of why is Silicon why did Silicon Valley happen and is it unique? <laughs> and I was wondering if your particular set of viewpoints gives you a, a a particular perspective on that question. I don't think I have anything new. I mean, you know, you and many other people are so smart about this and have written and thought I'm, about I'm obsessed it so about it, but I just I see that it's. Um, it's either, you know, Rashomon or the blind man and the elephant. You know? Yes. It's everybody's. And, you know, Margaret, uh, Margaret Amara's book just came out on it. She, she sort of dialed the, the explanation toward the government, which I think has been very healthy because there's been a sort of push in the other direction. But, it, you know, it is this wonderful mystery it, in the sense of, to, to your question of, you know, how do you do it writ large? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, if this was this particular point at which innovation happened for particular reasons, how do you grow that and right. spread it all over the world? Yeah, I, I'm very, whenever someone has a simple explanation for a complex phenomenon, I, it pegs my <laughs> BS meter. And so, so uh, you know, yeah, it, it's an ecology, right? And so it has to have a lot of different factors that came into balance and then allowed it to surge. And people have written about all the different pieces. I've, I've been in, I, I try to avoid being in, but I end up in a lot of vacuous conversations about, you know, it was 
private entrepreneurship in the American way, or it was government. You know, almost every interesting thing that happened in technology happened because all of those yeah. pieces came up together, right? And it's their interplay that's super interesting. Well, you know, there's this also discuss discussion about life in the universe, right? Like, what if we're the only one? What if there was like this, you know? <laughs> so maybe that's what Silicon Valley is. It's the set of forces came together and they won't happen anywhere else. Well, so, this, I mean, one interesting thing is Silicon Valley itself isn't a static thing and it, yeah, I, it's a continuing mystery what the next generation of Silicon Valley looks like and, and at every, and any moment every time there's a crash of course everyone's like well we're all done now and that's never happened yet yeah. now and when 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 it's surging everyone tries to figure out what the next dip looks like and you can't even you know it's really hard to visualize I know. I've happen. been trying to I've been trying to call the top for the last three years yeah. I fail completely yeah. every time I know, which then everyone's like, well, there is no top in it. We know that's probably not true. <laughs> there was this moment, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, it was at a Salesforce conference where they take over that whole street in front of Moscone. Yeah. And I saw these guys um, who were firing $2 bills out of a gun. Oh. And I thought, this has to be a bubble top. <laughs> There's a, you know, how do you get attention, right? That yeah, was the problem. that's just tacky. Yeah, but that was a sign that, you know, that kind of stuff happened to the dot, I mean, I, dot com here. I'd yeah. seen this stuff before, right? The ir irrational exuberance kind of stuff. And I thought it was happening again, but it just went right on through it. And, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. so I, in, in some number of years, we'll be able to look back and see how the next what, what like how does this this endless expansion end yeah. there's some structural things happening in the world that make it hard to see it going forever well competition with china is an interesting one that's now on the radar um there is now alarm about China as a potential technological competitor. Do do you share that? I mean, at first there was in the AI community about three years ago there was this debate about China and how quickly they were coming on AI, and that was really before we knew that they were deadly serious about spending money. Yeah. But there was this huge uptick in papers, and and initially people were saying, well, the quality of papers not bad. You got you got lots of quantity, but they're 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 you know they're they're not innovative. Now people seem to think that they might be a real force in AI. Do you, uh, where are you what on I China? What do you think about that? Uh, first of all, part of this conversation reminds me, you know, you could have said verbatim everything you just said, go back 20 years and say about Japan. And I think that we have this sort of classic uh, reaction in the U.S. that starts with, Oh yeah, that's good work, but it's so practical. It's not really basic research, and therefore it's not as good. Um, but you know, in the Japanese case, that's what made them very good at manufacturing, and in the Chinese case, it's what makes them, I think, extraordinary at using AI. Whether or not, you know, while we're all arguing about how good their basic research is, they are doing practical things that are um, powerful and astonishing and alarming in some cases. And, so, and I guess I'm actually much more intrigued by that question of how different societies are going to choose to use the technology because it's just, you know, it's just an expression of the values of the society and the things that China's doing. Uh, I mean, I'm, there are many things we're doing more by default, by not paying attention, that I find that I think are concerning and invasive and troubling in terms of um, personal autonomy and privacy, but in China it's being done overtly and at scale, <laughs> at scale. Yeah. and um, and it's I don't think I, my sense is there are people who know so much more than I do, but it's not like the government's doing it to the people. I think there's broad acceptance that that's 
a good thing to do. Absolutely. You know, the last I, I spent time in China at the end of 2016, and I spent time in the third ring, and I was I, I was struck both times by how similar Chinese culture is to Silicon Valley. I was completely at home, including the fact that most of them spoke English, right? So you, were, you can walk into the third ring, which is their technology center in Beijing, and you can be right at home, except they don't have this democracy bug. <laughs> You, know, you think it's like, a bug or a feature? That's a good question. <laughs> Absolutely, I don't want. Didn't want to go there, but um, you know. The, well, I want to go there. I mean, I think yeah. that's the whole. That's the most interesting question. Is like, what, what? What are the conditions under which people in a society thrive? I mean, I got an opinion on that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so. You know, at the moment, um, I'm running this program that transcribes, transcri we're recording your conversation, but we're also transcribing it. And it's a company that's in Mountain View. I, I know. It, it, it How feels, good is it? It's unbelievably it's great. good. Oh, that's great. So, and, and what's interesting to me, sort of where I'm going with this, is this is a guy who got a degree, a Chinese guy, who got a degree at Stanford, and then he went to work for Google, and he was involved in Google location work. And then he started a couple companies, and he started this one. And it's homegrown. I mean, it's done by a Chinese national who moved to America, and it's being done in the heart of Silicon Valley. To me, that's kind of the golden goose. And it, I mean, you know, one of the the things that's driven Silicon Valley is that it was a magnet for the best and the brightest from the world. Okay, for whatever else you describe about the immigration question, it's pretty clear that it's part of the chemistry of Silicon Valley. Yeah. It also seems like it's something you could kill if the best and the brightest don't come here. Um, they'll do. They'll do their work somewhere else in the world, and yeah, I mean, I'm making a statement. Just, it's not a question, but I, I want to. No, I mean, I think you're you're completely right. I it, that's true of America in general. It's true of Silicon Valley in particular, and you know, I mean, I this this is one of so many areas where it what all this thrashing around is the United States trying to figure out how to play its role in a changed world. We knew we knew who we were in the Cold War and uh, in, in the world order that existed then. And we're still this phenomenally powerful country, but we haven't figured out who, how to play this role in the way the world is today. And, uh, and I mean, we haven't figured it, I mean, it's toxic, bad in so many areas, immigration just being one example. So since you left DARPA, you come back to the Valley, in the last year, there've been some really bitter flights about the role of high tech uh, and its relationship to the military and to the Pentagon. And I was wondering, sort of standing where you stand, when, when the Google researchers sort of bridled and when Microsoft researchers, how did you feel and did you have a, a sense they were making a mistake or is there a, is there a middle road anywhere? You know, this to me is related to this, this broader question of how especially how technical people today think about their about ethics and about their role in society and so a couple of things one is i think at the at the top level when i see that my first reaction is i'm really glad to see technologists who are asking those questions I, again when i you know when i was in my 20s and 30s i i didn't certainly when, when i was in graduate school i never had the sense that that was much on people's minds so i think that's really good Specifically with respect to the questions about national security, I, there, there are times when I see the reaction of the employees in a company and I think, and I, 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 I think I know more than they do about how the technology is being used and what, for what purposes. 
And there are times when I think, oh, they really got that right. I'm so glad they're protesting. I'm very concerned about how it's being used. And there are other times when I think what they're saying is they don't actually think we uh, should have a military capability or worry about national security. And I think they're actually being quite naive. Now, I'm actually totally fine with it if you've thought deeply and gone and dug into it and thought about world affairs, the role of, the con of our country in the world, and thought about military technology and come to the conclusion that you think we should not be going in a particular direction or having a particular military capability. Uh, I've thought a lot about those things and concluded that, that while we don't not, I don't always agree with everything that we do, I actually do think we need to have a strong national security capability and a strong military. And I want us to use aggressively advanced technology, but very thoughtfully and carefully. So I'm fine if you've thought if you've done the work and we disagree, I honor that. Sometimes I think it's a little naive because I think people are just like, I just don't like that because it uh, makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think we debated a little bit when you were here was sort of where you draw the line on weapons autonomy. It, it's a very <laughs> difficult and increasingly murky, murky slope. So th this issue on weapons autonomy, it's, I think this is an issue that we keep circling. The, here are the, when I think about my interactions with the military and national security community in general, thinking about FBI and others as well, th there are things that we are talking about that I think the society in general is worrying about that I am not worrying about. And then there are things that I don't think we're worrying about enough that I am worrying about. So the thing that I'm not worrying about is about the machines turning themselves on, declaring war, and going out and killing people. And the reason I'm not that worried about that is that when you meet professional, when you meet military officers in the United States military, what you quickly realize is that in contrast to those of us who do science and engineering, they actually have ethics core, integral to their training, to the way that they are groomed, uh, it's part of their curricula when they go through school. And the reason for that isn't that complicated. They are the people that we have said for us as citizens. We've said to them, when, when we, are, we as a country are facing harm, you are the per person I am giving the authority to to make life and death decisions, right? And so it's really good that they think about these ethics issues. The upshot of that is that those are the people that I think are the least likely ever to relinquish control to a machine. They take that responsibility so completely seriously. The thing I'm very worried about that I don't think we think of, I mean, I think we're getting more attention on it, but I'm, I still think it's much more dangerous, is the, whether it's companies who, yes, they're trying to do good things for society, but they are business, the, the organism is a business and it is driven to make profit. Yeah. And, and that colors what you think is good for society. And similarly, if you are a border patrol agent, you're, you know, or you're in the military, or you're in the FBI, you are in the business of seeing threats and dangers. And you know, we pay them to do that so that I don't have to, I can sleep at night. But they end up living in a very paranoid world. And the things that, it's so hard to, to really remember that civil liberties matter or that individual privacy matters when you're the one who's on the line to make sure that a terrorist doesn't blow up Times Square. And it's these inadvertent biases that I think are so dangerous because they lead you to, they, they make you blind to things that really matter for society ultimately. Yeah. To, to your previous point, I mean, I struggle a lot with this. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, 
I think I'm going to come back. You just got, you hit all my hot buttons, John, and then I'm just like going here. It's an extremely difficult ethical argument. I um, I think this was two books ago when I was writing about uh, the Valley with Dormouse. I think it was Jacques Vallée that I interviewed, who as a young engineer at SRI designed the first smart bombs. Um, and, and this tracks, it's the same debate, and his argument in in justifying what he did as an engineer is he grew up in France and um, he lived in a village that had a bridge and both the Allies and the Germans spent the entire war trying to destroy that bridge. Exactly. And they hit everything in the village except, right. for, the, uh, and except for the bridge. Right. Because um, the bombing accuracy was the size of half a city, right? Like you dropped it and you had no idea where it was going to go. Yeah, yeah. And so I understand that. And now that... People like Jerry Kaplan, who defends the development of AI technologies to, for weapon systems, they, they're using the same argument. And it, it, to me, it seems like a, it's a valid argument. And yet, you know, the mechanism moves in a direction where you get yourself into really bad places, potentially. I think both of those are true. So, so that's the biggest strategic shift that's happened in military technological capability since since you know, for this last half of this last century, right, is, is the move from mass to precision. World War II was just, can you build bigger bombs? And, and basically, post-Vietnam, we went in the direction of, can you deliver the weapon on target much more precisely? And, you know, just to be very, very uh, quantitative about it, the number of people who die during conflict, during any of the recent high-tech conflicts, is a microscopic fraction of the kind of civilian casualties that we've had in Vietnam or before. So, so hard to argue that that's bad. And on the other hand, and there's always another hand, right? Because on the other hand, I think it's also pretty easy to say that that's, that has drawn senior military leaders and senior political leaders into conflict and killing in circumstances that we wouldn't have gone before, right? So. Yeah. And so I look at that, and I would not turn the clock back to, you know, bigger and bigger weapons that, that obliterate cities. I, I'm, I'm glad we shifted. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not never a pure thing, right? There, there were two other technologies that, you're, that were pioneered at DARPA under your directorship that I'm fascinated by. One, I don't know if you even noticed this, but did you... <laughs> You know, uh, about a month ago, uh, Elon Musk finally announced Neuralink. Yeah. And uh, there's a couple of thoughts. One is, that I, this didn't get into my article. I actually wrote something for the Times about it. But the two teams that he acquired to build that company are DARPA-funded sure. teams. Yeah. I mean, they came from UCSF and, and Berkeley, and that was the technology. And I know you guys were funding a lot of brain-computer interface work. And went on, but he picked two particular. So, I mean, and I didn't get a lot of coverage, but he's one of a... A number of companies that are pursuing that. Now, right. to, to your point about you're not worried at night about the machines taking over, um, you know, Elon, if you push him just a little bit, he'll say, well, I'm doing this because I think the machines are going to take over. And the only way we can save ourselves is by t coupling ourselves tightly to them, uh, which t to me is an argument that's just bizarre even by science fiction standards because it, I, did he not see Star Trek? Does he not know about the Borg? I mean, it's just like, what could possibly go wrong? I mean... That's my favorite question, is what could possibly go wrong? It's always a good question. Uh, well, I don't agree with Elon. I, 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 I just think people are more interesting and more 
fantastic and more worrisome than any machine. So I'm always more interested in, um, that's the, I think people are the danger. Technology just makes them more dangerous, basically. But it's it's a very human thing we're talking about. It's not a machine thing. But, but there is this also, the, what you guys demonstrated in demonstrating brain control of, of you know, actual, yeah. act, of stuff in the environment is, um, you know, for the medical and assistive applications are, I mean, you know, you can take it that far without bothering to go into this other world and it justifies You can, but where do you draw that line? Because that line is invisible. Yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, I think, uh, so of all the things that we did at DARPA, that, that is not the area that I think is going to have the most immediate societal effect simply because it's about the human. It's about the human body and the human brain, and it's going to be medical to begin with. And 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 we have, for good reasons, we have lots of, uh, you know, lots of things to slow that down and make sure it's safe before we go too far, right? Um, but it was the area DARPA that I found literally the most mind blowing to think about because when you when you start thinking about uh, changing how the human brain connects to the world and releasing it from the constraint that it, it's going to connect through the to the rest of the world through the body that we have, um, it gets very interesting very quickly. And, and uh, you know, so one of my most fun moments at DARPA was we had an offsite, and DARPA is a place where you're not, you know, you're supposed to think outside the box, but of course you actually build your own box as you go. And so at, we had this offsite that was, we, it was me and my technical leadership team, and we wanted to challenge ourselves to get outside of the boxes that we had already built. And we had, oh, you know who we brought in to talk with us? That was really fun. We brought in Alta Charo, who's going to be a CASBIS fellow this year, who's an amazing bioethicist and a really creative person, and, uh, and a second science fiction uh, writer, really interesting sort of philosophical guy. But I'll tell you, it didn't take much to get people going, and uh, people wanted to get out of the box, and we broke into, te you know, we did all the offsite stuff, like you break into teams, and we brainstormed, and then the teams came back, and what every team had come up with one way or another was about, number one, how we were going to meld with our machines, and number two, that the most interesting thing about that was going to be our ability to meld with each other, because mediated by these connections to our machines, we started, you know, I mean, people have cutesy names like the hive or whatever. But when you were, so like, imagine if I could have in my brain the context that you've learned from all the work that you've ever done, yeah. or I'm negotiating with you about some terrible crisis around the world, but I understand the problems that you have feeding people in Ethiopia. And, and you know, I understand that you lost your mother to starvation. And like, I have that empathy for you. What if I could actually, what if we could understand each other? in ways that were that deep, could we, could we start to solve, could we go after some of the problems that you know, seem completely impossible today? So like, that sounds groovy. And then, and then you start thinking about, well, you know, like what does autonomy now mean, right? And what, what privacy, like I'm worried about privacy now. What, what does privacy even mean in this yeah. future? I think it's super interesting to think about all of those things. The other technology I was thinking about, because particularly, I mean, I, you know, I, I know that you as a director actually did stuff about thinking about privacy at DARPA and trying to trying to you know advance privacy against te this technology or in the context of the technology. But was was Gorgon Stair before your your t tenure? Mm. Did, did that show up on your? Yeah, I don't think it was my time. They put it both on drones and they can put it in balloons to watch whole areas. It's a oh, yeah. super high resolution sensor yes. system. 
and what I just noticed, and it's, it hasn't really become a controversy yet, but it's being Sierra Corp, which was the contractor that did the original Gore, is now doing similar work with probably related technology, basically over wide swaths of the U.S. Yeah. So it's come home, and you can actually, from a, you know, from a law enforcement point of view, this is an unbelievable tool. This is something that's on the street corners in, in, in London on steroids because you can use it as a DVR and anything happens at any point in the area that it's looking at, you can wind you the it. recorder backwards. <laughs> it's another one of those lines that just, you know, it's an, also an incredible civil liberties problem, potentially. Right. Developed in wartime when it's, that's how we dealt with Al-Qaeda. That's how we dealt with ISIS. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it all makes sense at the beginning, and then it's so logical to extend its use. Um, so, but back to privacy. So, uh, the DARPA program that I think you were talking about was called Brandeis, and it was about privacy-protecting technologies, differential privacy and encryption. That actually, I got this bug back then that if you could really unlock the value of data, and now I'm thinking about administrative data and healthcare data and educational data, as, really accentuated by the conversations I had at CASBAS. It seemed like all the really exciting big opportunities, the data is so valuable and we're just starting to get to get figure out what to do with this fountain of correlations, right, that it's throwing out. But every single interesting story would, would run aground because of privacy concerns. And so that itch turned into what we, what's gonna be our second program at Actuate. It's a data and privacy program. And it's building directly on those research efforts at from DARPA and other places. And trying to put them places. We want to demonstrate an end-to-end -end architecture for managing data and privacy together, and then do demonstrations where where you get, uh, you know, you you get administrative data from different sources, and and you clean it up and link it, and you start using it, but all while it's rigorously encrypted and protected and. Um, I know this company in Menlo Park has a real problem. They should fund you. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So uh, did you talk to Nate about um, Social Science One? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great. I can't wait to hear that interview. Yeah. So Gary King, who's uh, on the board at CASVAS and is Nate's uh, co-founder, I think, for Social Science One. Uh, yeah, we've been talking about exactly that. So, the, I mean, in both of your first two projects, I actually see parallels to things that are happening at CASVAS. I mean, have you had many conversations? Well, for sure on data and privacy. Well, the, 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 the moral economy project seems to, to, to map yeah. to some of the stuff. Yeah, I mean, it. philosophically, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, CASVAS was a year not only to hang out with social scientists and sort of get figure out how they approach the world, but I, I'd never been surrounded by three dozen people who just thought about the problems of our society all the time, right? I mean, that's actually not the frame that scientists and engineers live in. I mean, social scientists are working on far more interesting problems, but that I don't. I think there's not as much of a sense of agency. Scientists and engineers have a sense that they can just go do stuff and it's going to get better. And I think, uh, like, I'd love to have more of that in social science. Yeah. That would be great. Thanks for spending time with us. Oh my gosh, what fun. <laughs>